0: a warm welcome to Afternoons With Me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thanks to my guests in the first hour, Lance Hahn and Sheila Heen. They were both so much fun. If you missed any of that, you're going to want to go to MyFaithRadio.com. Hit rewind and start from the beginning. You're not going to not gonna regret it. This is going to be a great hour as well. Sam Alberry is going to be joining me in just a minute. He's recently written a book called Seven Myths About Singleness. We're going to talk about that. George Yancey is going to join me as well in this hour. So that's all that is ahead. You know, as I'm thinking about some of the news stories I've been reading lately, and it seems that most reporting these days consists of writing a news story about a tweet that was responding to a news story about a tweet. It's gotten kind of weird. So it's uh, nice to just talk about the stuff that really matters most in life, and that is the Bible and God and, and uh, faith. And so we're going to do that this hour. So, 60 seconds, and we'll be back with Sam Mulberry.
1: The He Reads Truth Study Bible combines God's Word in the easy-to-read CSB translation with thoughtfully designed resources that make it easier to understand. Featuring timelines, charts, maps, multiple reading plans, and wide margins for note-taking, the He Reads Truth Study Bible will inspire men to spend daily time in the Scriptures, increase biblical literacy, and build a deeper relationship with God. We're giving away one He Reads Truth study Bible each week this month. Enter to win at MyFaithRadio.com.
0: We've recently expanded Faith Radio's reach by now broadcasting in FM in all our markets. More and more people are growing in their faith by hearing our programming in a clear, strong FM signal. Thanks for your ongoing financial and prayer support that makes this expansion possible. Visit MyFaithRadio.com to see the FM
1: frequencies for each city in our network. Then set your station preset button to Faith Radio
0: and enjoy in FM. Welcome back to the show. Sam Alberry is my guest. He's a pastor and an author and a speaker. He goes to a lot of conferences. He speaks for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, uh, editor for the Gospel Coalition. He's also a visiting professor at Cedarville University, and he's got a cool accent. Sam, welcome.
1: Uh, thanks for having me and for the uh, compliment about the accent. Well, that's very true. <laughs> Are you <laughs> over in the UK right now, or where do you live? Um, I'm still technically living in the UK, but I'm speaking to you from Nashville. Oh, nice. So it's more it's, time. It's, yeah, it's days. yeah.
0: It's a reasonable hour for you then.
1: It is yes, very very reasonable. Yeah. Thank
0: you. and seven myths about singleness. Nice job, and it seems like it's gotten great rave reviews. List uh, readers love it, and you've done nice work here.
1: Well, thank you. It, it, I'm encouraged to hear that, and the, the feedback I've had is the feedback I was I was I was hoping for throughout the project. I I hoped it wouldn't sound like a kind of grumpy single person writing to other grumpy single people, <laughs> but really something that will help us understand singleness as a church as a whole. And it's been lovely to hear, actually to hear married friends saying it's it's helped them even to think about their marriages in a healthy way. So I really wanted it to be a book for the whole church. And I've been pleased to to hear some of those kinds of comments coming back that other types of people have found it to be very helpful.
0: Yeah, now, well, you've got seven myths. I know we've got a little bit of time here today, so I would I would love to dig into some of those if you don't mind. No, of course. Um, let's start with the first one. Singlen- singleness is just too hard.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the most common um, sort of myth, really, that when I was speaking on the Christian sexual ethic, um, particularly in the context of issues of same-sex attraction and the Christian definition of marriage, one of the things that often is said in response is, oh, so you're you're dooming people to singleness. And... The, the sort of assumption seems to be that singleness is a kind of lesser form of, of human living, that it's, um, it's a kind of shriveled up <laughs> kind of existence. And so really, I just wanted the starting point of the book to be the way in which the New Testament, surprisingly to us, and yet consistently speaks of singleness in very positive terms. And therefore, if we think, well, marriage is is the way to kind of be a real human, and singleness is a kind of very diminished form of humanity. I wanted us to see actually the Bible has a very different starting point to us on this, and therefore we need to we need to adjust our thinking. Uh, we need to catch up with where the Bible's at because we have so many cultural assumptions that we bring to this issue that do need to be questioned. And I think the most common one is that a life without romantic kind of fulfillment, is somehow a really diminished form of life. So that's really what I was trying to address in the first chapter. And, of course, that the focus of that is that, that Jesus himself was the most complete and full human being who ever lived and yet was single. So that immediately shows us we cannot diminish singleness without diminishing the humanity of Jesus. Mm-hmm
0: and you lay out in the book very clearly uh, in the first chapter about um, although these are some challenging statements the bible is very clear uh, sex outside of marriage is sinful Matthew fifteen nineteen. um sexual sin includes not just the physical act but our thoughts and attitudes as well it's Matthew 5:28 and marriage is between a man and a woman for life and the godly alternative is to be celibate
1: that's right and you know th- those are not easy truths in today's culture and I, I was quite intentional in, I mean, there are lots of parts of the Bible where we see those truths reflected and taught, but I really wanted to show people this is what the Jesus of the Gospels says. They don't just have an issue with with Paul or with the Old Testament, but but Jesus himself taught these things very clearly. And it seems to me that so many people today think that Jesus was kind of, had nothing to say on issues of sexual ethics and sexuality and all those things. But actually he has some very challenging things to say and, and we, we cannot claim to be Christian and not follow Jesus or at least seek to follow Jesus on his teaching about sex and marriage and, and sexual ethics in general. So those three truths for me are the, are the real kind of foundation blocks for how we think about marriage, singleness, sexuality and a whole host of other things. They seem to me to be utterly foundational. And because they're what Jesus teaches, they must be good truths. They're not. It's not Jesus sort of giving us mean things to you know have to be constrained by. But these are the good words of our of our good Lord.
0: Mm -hmm. Sam, might we feel that it's a conflict to honor singleness and honor marriage? How do we do both?
1: We 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 do both. They're, They're very. They're very different things, and therefore we we can honor each in their own way. Each is spoken of positively um, in the New Testament, so there are good things about each that we need to uphold and respect um, and honoring one if we do it in the biblical way in no way diminishes the other but i think it's I think it's helpful to honor both at the same time so that we we avoid the appearance of kind of over-spiritualizing one and you know diminishing the spiritual value of the other so i'm i'm certainly not wanting to say that you know we've we've overemphasized marriage and now we need to overemphasize singleness we want to uphold both alongside each other and i think better understanding and honoring singleness will actually help us better understand and honor marriage and the fact that we have i think some very negative stereotypes about singleness suggests to me we're not clear in our thinking about marriage either. Mm-hmm.
0: When um, I think of uh, people who are single and they are, um, you know, Satan be the, being the father of all lies and God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Satan will probably want to get in someone's brain and say, ooh, you're going to be alone. You're not going to like it. No one's going to be there for you, and that's going to make people
1: nuts. Yeah, and that, that's a genuine fear. Oh, and definitely. So many of us have that fear. But um, there's a few things to say on that. And I th- probably the first thing to say is that, that marriage is no guarantee um, against that fear um, for a number of reasons. I know some people who are in actually less than happy marriages and who even feel lonely in their marriage. Mm-hmm. Not really desired or understood or wanted by their spouse. And I can only imagine that, um, you know, loneliness in marriage is much harder than loneliness in singleness. Mm -hmm. To me, it sounds like a a living hell. Yeah. So just being married is not going to be the answer to all our fears about loneliness. And not to mention the fact that, um, you know, those who are married. Over half of them are going to be single again one day, um, through the loss of a spouse, or if, if sadly, the marriage ends in divorce. Mm-hmm. So we need something bigger than simply putting a ring on our finger to answer that fear about loneliness. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we we need to lean into the the presence and union we have with Christ. But more than that, we need to see that the broader categories the Bible gives us for having deep and rich relationships with other people and culturally we've put so much focus on the romantic and the sexual kind of relationship we've we've almost forgotten that it's actually possible to feel deeply known and deeply loved by other people through being part of a a rich and healthy christian community uh through through deep and appropriate friendship and the bible has a, a kind of broader way of thinking about that kind of deep uh relationship I think than our culture does so we tend to think I either have a a marriage partner or I'm lonely but that's to entirely exclude the biblical categories of friendship of, of the church being a spiritual family and all of these things are meant to be forms of, of community and it, you know it shouldn't be the case that being single means you are lonely um, that shouldn't be the shouldn't be the case For anyone in any of our churches, it it sadly is, but it shouldn't be Mm -hmm. because the the church is meant to be the the primary answer to that loneliness. I shouldn't have to think as a believer, well, if I don't get married, I'm just going to be, life is just going to be unbearably lonely. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The church is meant to be a, you know, the, the proof that that's not the case.
0: Sam Albury is my guest. He's written a book called Seven Myths uh, About Singleness. We're going to take a little break, and then we'll be right back. We're going to keep our text line open. If you have a question, uh, one in uh, targeted for Sam, let me know, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. Awfully glad to be joined by Sam Alberry. He is a pastor and speaker and author. He's written a number of books. One I've got in my hand is Seven Myths About Singleness. Sam, the myth that singleness requires a special calling. That's interesting.
1: <laughs> it is. That's one word for it. Um and I th- I think it's a misunderstanding of what Paul meant when he talked about the gift of singleness in 1 Corinthians seven. I think we've we've assumed what Paul means is that the gift of singleness is the un, unusual or uncommon state of being particularly able to flourish in singleness. And therefore, we assume that there'll be lots of single people who don't have the gift of singleness. And it then leads to this this awful kind of situation where people who might not have the opportunity to get married... Still, nevertheless, feel as though they don't have the gift of being single, and so they're feeling as though God is placing them in an impossible situation. And I'm—I've sadly seen Christians enter into, frankly, quite unbiblical kinds of relationship, and justifying it on the basis that, well, I don't have the gift of singleness, and therefore I can't be single, and this is the only option available to me. Mm-hmm. So that—that that cannot be what Paul is—is is meaning, and. You know, Paul also talks about the gift of marriage in the same passage, but we wouldn't want someone to think, well, I know I'm married, but I'm not finding it very easy this week. Maybe I don't have the gift of being married. And then using that as a as a kind of pretext for, for abandoning marriage vows. Um, the, the fact is that, that both singleness and marriage themselves are gifts. Uh, they are manifestations of God's goodness to us. And they are actually means, a means of his blessing to other people. Actually, just as later on in the same letter Paul defines spiritual gifts as being for the common good, I'd want to say the same is true of marriage and singleness. They're not meant to be an end in themselves. They're meant to be a means of of serving God and His kingdom. So, if you're married, you have the gift of being married, and if you're single, for as long as you're single, you have the gift of being single. And therefore, it doesn't mean that either is without challenges and peculiar difficulties, but it does mean that we, we should be able to discern within each something of God's kindness to us in being single and something of God's kindness to us in being married, that both are intrinsically good gifts. Mm-hmm. And each has their own way of being challenging.
0: Tim, this next one I'm going to ask you about is kind of the... Uh... The ninety-eight mile an hour fastball, and that is, of course, that singleness means no intimacy.
1: Yes, and again, I think this is the the underlying fear that we we talked about earlier that I will be on my own mm-hmm. if I am single, and again, I think we we've assumed an unbiblical and, and quite unhealthy definition of of intimacy um, in our in our Western culture. We we've so associated that word. With sexual intimacy, mm-hmm. that we feel as though that that sexual relationships are the only real way of being deeply known by others, and as, as I understand it in the Bible, intimacy really is that sense of being deeply known and deeply loved, which all of us are made for, and which all of us all of us need, but which is available to us in differing ways through, as I mentioned earlier, through friendship. Which in the Bible is a is a hugely intimate kind of relationship. Um, we we've downgraded it because we've so focused on the romantic kind of relationship. We've turned friendship really into little more than just someone you share some trivial common interest with and may see from time to time. But in the Bible, in the Book of Proverbs, a friend is someone who knows your soul. But mm-hmm. uh, Jesus Himself in John fifteen fifteen. One of those verses I would not believe were it not for the fact that it's it's there in the Bible. Jesus says in that verse, I no longer call you disciples, I've called you friends. And he then explains what he means by that, by saying, for all that the Father has revealed to me, I've made known to you. So for Jesus, friendship consists of someone that you really do spill all the beans with. Um, you do open up, you do let them in to what's really going on in the, in the depths of your life. Um, that to Jesus is what is defining a friendship. So that is something we have really, really lost sight of culturally, and I suspect increasingly in the church as well, and therefore needed to rediscover that the biblical vision for friendship and something of the art of friendship that our, our forebears knew far more about than we tend to know today.
0: Mm-hmm. I just had a text come in from a listener named Scott. He said, hey, Bill, here's a question for Sam. When I was single, I, I often felt excluded by couples and families at church, and the singles group felt like a marriage meat market where I was expected to find mm-hmm. that special someone who had been reserved for me from birth. What's the mm-hmm. antidote for these negative patterns in church, church congregations?
1: yeah that's a great question and i'm I'm sure and and sad that Scott's experience is not unusual mm-hmm. um, I'm sure it is which is is part of the reason I wrote the book is <laughs> to give us a i think a healthier perspective of of singleness and of marriage, so I think the answer is that we we don't put marriage we don't make an idol out of it we are to value it and to revere it but it's not meant to be ultimate. And therefore life should not be about either being married or trying to get married. And we need to reflect that in our church cultures. And actually it's a loss for all of us if married folks are not spending time with single folks. Um, it's, It's great for us who are single to be, you know, to get to know families well, to get to know couples well, um, but it's also good for the couples and the families to have other types of people in their kind of close orbit as well. So I think we need to, again, rediscover that the biblical vision of a blended spiritual family, that we are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters in Christ. that that's not just, you know, lip service language. It's, it's meant to be expressing of, of something real. And if we can recapture that, I think it will actually bless all of us. Um, It's not good if married people only hang around with other married people. Um, We we each need to learn something and it can have a moderating effect against our own blind spots. If we're spending good time with people at different stages of life and in different situations in life, that will enrich all of us. We We will learn things from each other. That we wouldn't learn just from being around people who are more like us. Mm-hmm. Sam
0: Alberry is my guest. His book is Seven Myths About Singleness, and I've been kind of cherry picking some of the myths because we don't have time for all seven. We're only down to three minutes left, so Sam, I'm going to jump into singleness wastes your sexuality. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> yes, get people's uh, attention.
1: Yeah, and the, the thinking there is that if you if you're single, th- this whole aspect of our humanity that we're sexual beings is somehow being wasted and neglected. And I just want to make the simple point that our sexuality is given to us ultimately to be a signpost to the deeper union and the greater consummation that we have in Jesus Christ. And therefore, if we allow it to point to that, we don't have to, to meet our sexual desires in order to fulfill the purposes for which we have them. Uh, therefore, singleness can point to the gospel just as marriage can point to the gospel, and therefore singleness in a godly way is a great way of fulfilling the purpose for which God gave us sexuality.
0: Mm-hmm. Just had another text from a listener. She's a two-time widow, once at 22 years old for eight years, and again for the last 14 years. One of the hardest mm-hmm. things is because you are single again, your married friends exclude you often and eventually exclude you always. Even married family members exclude you from gatherings. Loss of friendship is a deep
1: loss. Oh, that's that's so tragic to hear mm, because you know. Already dealing with profound loss and then only having further loss added to that. Um and again, we we really need as as churches to to repent of that kind of behavior. Um and again, one of the reasons I wrote wrote the book was because sometimes when people think about singleness, they're just thinking about the not yet married 20s and 30s. And yet increasingly, there is a, a, a massive, very quickly growing demographic of people who are single again, um, like our friend who's who's messaged in there. Mm-hmm. So again, and it's our responsibility as a church to, to be church, to be family, to be community, to all of us. And it shouldn't be the case that people who become single again, have to face on top of the trials of, of that kind of bereavement, the added grief of friends not quite knowing what to do with them. Something's very wrong in our church culture if that is happening. Yeah. Sam,
0: I would would just love to have you back because if I open up the phone lines, we're going to get a lot of calls and a lot of listeners with questions. If you'd be willing to come back, I'd love to have you back.
1: It would be a privilege to come back. It's been lovely to
0: be with you. Thank you, Sam. Sam alberry has been my guest. Seven Myths About Singleness is one of his many books he's written. We'll take a little break and we'll be back with more in just a minute. back to the show, there's a survey that was relatively recent that said half of all Americans believe that evangelicals face discrimination, it's even called Christian Christianophobia. The word Christianophobia means literally fear of Christians. There's more and more of it happening nowadays, and the existence of Christianophobia shouldn't be surprising. Jesus pretty much himself said that The world's gonna have hatred for Christians. The world hates you. Know that it hated me first before it hated you. So I guess it's um, kind of is what it is. But it seems like it's becoming more and more. And here to talk to me about that today is George Yancey. He's a sociologist and professor of sociology at Baylor University. Returning guest to the show. So glad to have you back, George. How are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. This is uh, getting more and more real, isn't it? This uh, anti Christian discrimination in America?
2: Well, I think we are seeing more examples of it as people with uh, that sort of discrimination have more and more social and cultural power.
0: And so um, when we are thinking of these anti-Christian attitudes that are spreading, um, isn't some of it just kind of what Jesus said you're going to have?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, I separate this from being a Christian and being a sociologist. Okay. You know, as a Christian, you know I understand that uh, that we have a faith that if we are if if we're following the faith that we should, and we don't always do that, we are going to go against the stream of society, and thus we're going to gather some resentment. Uh, as a scholar, you know I'm not sure it's it's really increased. I think more it's the matter of people with this sort of hatreds gain more power, ah. and so so i think, I think it probably will increase over time because now they have more power to to uh influence it through the culture and such mm-hmm. but uh but yeah, that's how I sort of separate both of them and, and that would also uh match the expectation that uh, Christians are going to face more resentment that we would find in the Bible
0: yeah George what do you think has caused that power shift?
2: Well, I think it kind of worked out this way, and this is oversimplification, of course. I've done some research that shows that uh, people with anti-Christian attitudes, they've gained more uh, economically uh, over, over the past 20 years. And My think happened was, for whatever reason, and I don't have the, the wherewithal or the ability to see all the reasons why it started emerging, but I think it started emerging about 20, 30 years ago. And where it, where it sort of situated was in graduate schools. So you had a, a lot of individuals who were in graduate schools who did not have a lot of economic power, but still were gaining a lot of education. And now, as they have gained more and more cultural power in our society, as they've gained more positions of influence, then the power of those with Christianophobia has increased. That's what I suspect has happened.
0: That's really interesting. Um, So why, do you think that people have just become so reductionistic in how we think about people nowadays? The minute you say, well, I'm a Christian or I'm a Christ follower, they instantly raise to their conclusions about who you are and what you believe and what you think, and you're a hater. And we just, are we just so reductionistic now?
2: I think there's no doubt that that's true in some of the cases, especially for people who've not been exposed to a lot of different Christians and don't appreciate the diversity under this umbrella that we call Christianity. I think that that is really true. I think that you know some people just resent others who are different, and there's a tribalism that's part of this as well, and and there are definitely some some stereotypes out there. That are used against Christians by those with Christianophobia. Stereotypes of Christians being bigoted, being hateful, uh, imposing their, their will on others, not being able to critically think. And so, people, when they, if they haven't been exposed to Christians, when they meet Christians, they have this, this sort of knapsack of stereotypes that they can use to impose on this person until this person proves otherwise.
0: Mm-hmm. Are we uh, just becoming more divided where we're just hanging with our own group?
2: I think that's part of it. I think that there is something to the way that our society has changed, especially in the age of social media and Internet, that we can be around people in our real life and online who think pretty close to what we do. And so if we have a prejudice, regardless of what that prejudice is against, whether it's against Christians or blacks or or Jews or what have you, that we're, we we could be around people who also share that prejudice and sort of reinforces it. In fact, research shows that if you don't have diversity of thought in your social world, you'll start to become more and more extreme in your thinking.
0: Mm-hmm. So when we are obviously living in a in a post-Christian world, when do you think we started doing that?
2: Boy, that that that, that, that that's a that's an interesting one. Uh, I I think it's been since the turn of the of the century that we've seen it more and more, you know, you had the rise of people who are no longer affiliated with religion. Uh, and I'm not saying that those people necessarily hate religion, but of course it sets the uh, stage to make uh, those who hate Christianity, uh, they can thrive in that. So I think you, you start seeing that uh, develop. Uh, I can't tell, I mean, and I think some of this dynamics I've talked about as far as people who did not have power started gaining power as they moved up in their positions you, you see it more with companies mm-hmm. uh companies that are uh, that are run more and more especially uh social media companies that are run more and more by individuals who have uh antipathy towards christians towards religion in general but really towards christians a lot and so i think there's multiple factors i think that's a really good study that you know one day maybe i'll try to undertake it but it'd be kind of difficult to sort of see what, what the history of all this is. But I think that's a really good question.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, George, maybe we could try to talk about the difference between persecution and discrimination. Because when I think of, sure. of being a Christian, like in a Muslim world, uh, you can convert, you can flee, or you can die. <laughs> that's persecution. Yeah. Versus, that is. Yeah. Um, versus just feeling like you be, you're being discriminated against.
2: Right, yeah, and even being discriminated against is not necessarily persecution, and and I and I I agree with you. Now, technically, the word persecution covers a lot of things, and if you if you really stuck to the definition of the word, a lot of people can claim persecution. Just you know, just not being lied can be considered persecution. But the way we use it in our society is, you know, persecution is something that is depriving people of their liberties, of their freedoms, of their mm-hmm. lives, even. There is there is anti-Christian discrimination, and so to that extent, you're depriving people of some of their ways, means of, of earning a living. But it's – I don't like the word persecution, even though it may technically be available, because I want something that's what's happening to Christians uh, in Muslim countries to have – that's different than what's happening here. What's happening to Muslims in China is different than what's happening here, and mm-hmm. then we need to, to distinguish between the two.
0: Yeah. So if we look at what's going on in America, safe to say Christians get oftentimes looked down upon, uh, ridiculed, mocked. I mean, oftentimes on television that they're always they're always the subject of complete ridicule, and then oftentimes we're just marginalized because of because of having and holding Christian values.
2: Yeah. You know, the, the culture is really where you see a lot of this. When you think about the institutions that create culture, such as media, such as entertainment, such as academia. <clears throat> you know, you see a lot of anti-Christian stereotypes that are really pre- prevalent there. Uh, it's hard to think, and I don't watch a lot of TV, so I could be wrong on this. It's hard to think of a current, current character on a mainstream TV show who's Christian and played in a sympathetic way, Right. who's a conservative Christian and played in a sympathetic way. Uh, and so when, when you think about things like that, you realize that we have a culture that that pumps out some of these anti-Christian tropes, and and does so almost unchallenged because Christians themselves are not very influential in the mainstream media or academia or or entertainment or art world or things of this nature.
0: Mm-hmm. George, aren't Christians Christian beliefs just held and regarded in in such a biased manner nowadays? I mean, if you profess to believe in something that the Bible teaches, there's a good chance you're not going to get the job, or you might even lose your job.
2: Yeah, I think it depends on the job. You know, I think certain jobs, certain jobs, I think that it could be dangerous to do that. Uh, there there still are some protections as far as religious discrimination, and so someone who fires you for being a, a Christian, unless it's like a you know, like a temple or a mosque or one hire you to to be the clergy, of course, you know. But something like that, uh you you have recourse and, and you're not gonna find people saying, I'm firing you because you're a Christian. What's more likely to happen is that certain viewpoints people will find unpalatable and then uh they they, they may they may let people go based upon that. And we do have some we do have some uh cases of that. Uh one case I'm trying to remember his name of, of a pastor. I came around to talk about, I think it's Eric Walsh, of a pastor of a lay church who was basically fired from his uh, government job uh, because he preached a sermon in his church uh, about homosexuality being a sin. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so that's sort of how it can happen. Uh, that's a little extreme. Usually the people go to churches to find that, but still, it can happen that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, Christians have to just not have thick skin today and be tough i mean if you're if you're a christian and you want to train your children in a biblical world view uh you know you're gonna have other people saying that you're brainwashing them or that you're you know you're you're not giving them the full picture
2: there is some of that attitude uh some people uh believe that uh well in fact i think it was dawkins who said that uh religious social religious socialization was child abuse uh and so I, I, there, there is some of that attitude, and you can see that in some places of Europe where they discourage homeschooling and and things that help families to socialize their their kids in their faith. So one wonders if such individuals have power in our country to do that. Whether that they would try to do stuff like that as well. So I, I do think that there are those who would like to discourage religion, and specifically Christianity. And would like to find ways of doing that uh, that are legal in our society.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, what about the anti—some uh, of the discrimination Christians can have towards others and their religious beliefs?
2: Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I talk to Christians about, you know, you got to be careful about Islamophobia. Not just because it's wrong, because it is, but also the, the things that you are attacking Muslims today can be used against you tomorrow. So, you know, it's one of the ways I'm trying to get Christians to wake up about, you know, uh, being Islamophobic, uh, treating Muslims differently than you would others when it comes to to things, you know, in the public sphere. Uh, We simply cannot do that. Mm -hmm.
0: George, I'm going to take a little break. When I come back, maybe you can coach us on, you know, how to better and live in a post-Christian kind of world and some of the things that we can just do and know and take, take action on. That sound okay? Right.
2: Sounds great. Good. It sounds great.
0: Yep. George Yancey, a sociologist and professor of sociology at Baylor University. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back, George Yancey is my guest. He's a sociologist and professor of sociology at Baylor University. And George, just a little bit of a personal question, but uh, do you experience discrimination uh, as a Christian at a secular environment?
2: Well, uh, I just started Baylor. Okay. I've, I've you know, the past nineteen years, I've been at University of North Texas. Okay. Uh you know, I I think it's 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 subtle. I'm pretty well established, uh, and people know I'm a Christian, but I've also uh, established myself as a as a professor, as a scholar, as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that I really face that much at this point in my career. Uh, that may change, who knows, but at least at this point in my career. I do <clears throat> remember earlier in my career, uh, you know, one of the interesting things is that when you're in academia, people assume that you're not a Christian. And sometimes, so sometimes it's not as much. Uh, although I, I can't remember one situation, but it's just not as much as far as direct discrimination. It's just being around people just talking about Christians as if you're not even there, and using kind of dehumanizing language as they do so. So, uh, so you know, I've, I've experienced that. Now that people kind of know I'm a Christian and I've developed somewhat of a of a name, you know, that doesn't happen as nearly as much. But uh, but yeah, but you know, you can see stuff like that happening.
0: Yeah, so obviously we're not living um, in a world anymore that's super supportive of Christians. So we're going to need to support and protect each other. How do we best live out uh, our lives in a in a post Christian world?
2: I think it's very important that we start thinking about building our Christian community. Uh, I know Rod Dry here wrote a book on the Benedict Option, and and you know some people will like it, some people don't. But mm-hmm. I, I think he's more he's more right than wrong. I don't agree with every single word in that book. But I think it's more right than wrong, that the notion that we can use politics uh, in a way to advance our values and views in, in this day and age is a foolish one. That's not to say we don't participate in politics. It is to say that what's going to be more important is that we live in a community with one another, that we support one another. And I think that's going to be a powerful witness in a society where more and more people are friendless, where they, where, where individuals are disconnected from one another, to have a community that's out there is going to be very attractive, regardless of what sort of political power it may have. And so I've really been uh, real attracted to how can we develop a Christian community where we know and love one another and support one another uh, in our day-to-day living.
0: And George, that, that is not easy. I mean, those those are lofty goals that Christ calls us to unity, but that, that there's a struggle there, isn't there?
2: Yeah, there is because we are divided even within the church in so many ways. I mean, some of my earlier work on race relations, I hope, can be used to try to ease that divide of our Christian community. But we we can't make the mistake of thinking this is going to be easy. But I I think it's necessary in the post-Christian world, and maybe maybe the pressures that we're going to face from the larger society is going to drive us towards. Uh, loving one another in a in a much better way than we have ever been before.
0: Mm-hmm. So if you're at your secular university and you're sitting around the coffee table and you're chatting and there's people saying that you know there's people being fined and jailed or, you know for living out their biblical convictions and those crazy bakers and florists that won't bake the cake or make the flowers or videotape the wedding, you know, you know, that feels like discrimination, and they don't even, you know, they how how do you respond in situations like that?
2: Yeah, you know, I think you have to pick your battles on when you want to engage. Sure. You know? And I would not count that, technically, as discrimination, you know, insensitive, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But I would not count that as discrimination. Uh, but I think you have to pick your battles. You have okay. to decide, you know, at a time where it's not in the past where you could probably take on all battles at once. Uh, so we have to decide, is this really worth a fight? Is this a fight worth having, or should we let this go for right now? And this is where a community can be valuable because you can go to your community and get support uh, and then go back out into a society where you could easily be dehumanized by those around you who either know you're a Christian or uh, don't care or they don't know, and therefore they, they talk about Christians in this sort of callous manner.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, Satan is behind all this uh, Christianophobia, right?
2: I, you know, I think so. Yeah. As a sociologist, I, you know, I don't talk about that sort of thing, but I think that, you know, all evil in in a generalized sense comes from Satan, Mm -hmm. even though I'm not sure about my theology as far as Satan creating all evil, but... Uh, I think there's some satanic elements to this, yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, George, I'm just kind of fascinated by your, your life, life story, which I don't really know much about. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your uh, upbringing and faith journey and how you ended up at Baylor?
2: Sure. Uh, I I grew up in a home that went to church. I don't know if I don't know call it a Christian family. <clears throat> I became a Christian when I was a sophomore in college and was— uh, Socialized into the faith. Soon afterwards, uh, I went on to grad school, and first was uh, working towards economics, but God called me towards sociology. First part of my sociological career, I focused a lot on racial issues, mm-hmm. uh, but then slowly God convinced me that uh, that I needed to also look at this anti-Christian attitudes and, and bias. And so I begin to turn towards that. And and so past, I don't know, maybe ten years, I've focused on looking at academic bias, uh, Christianophobia, uh atheists, doing some new work looking at the divisions between conservative and, and progressive uh Christians. Uh and I what Baylor's just very new. I mean I was approached about a couple years ago, and I investigated it and decided that this may be a good situation for me to try to move into, and hopefully to find some funding for my research so I can go on.
0: Yeah. All right. appreciate that. I I love little insights to George Ancy. And then uh, another listener jumped in with, uh, how is being forced by law to sin, not discrimination? Well...
2: it, there is discrimination. I just think people talking bad about you is not necessarily discrimination. Mm-hmm. Now, so, you know, uh, I've never said, I mean, my article, I, I make the argument that there there is anti, anti-Christian discrimination. And in fact, some of my research shows, uh, or at least provides evidence that it's very likely that in academia that Christians are discriminated against as far as getting jobs and such, Uh and, and so I've never denied that discrimination exists. I just don't call it persecution.
0: Mm hmm. So, um, how is this affecting political power and the shifts of political power with anti Christian bias? Is it skewing the results?
2: Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I think that uh, part of why President Trump won was that Christians have felt more and more of this. The, of, of people with Christianophobia and the power that they have, and they've feared uh, a president Clinton, and I think they rallied towards towards our towards President Trump. Uh, eventually, though, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I didn't think Trump was going to win in 2016, so I'm I'm not going to predict what's going to happen next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he may win again. He may not. He may not win again. Uh, I don't think anyone for sure knows. Uh, but eventually the Democrats will gain power, and I, I, I fear that there are elements of Christianophobia that uh, – just like I have – I critique Republicans on elements of racism that, that's within their party, not to say that all Republicans are racist, just saying that there's there's elements that are there. There's elements of Christianophobia in the Democrat Party, not to say that all Democrats are Christianophobic. Uh, <clears throat> and when they gain power, I fear there's going to be a backlash. Uh, because of the support of Christians at President Trump. And so what that's going to look like politically, you know, we can speculate. You know, we know that some senators have... Sorry. Are trying to apply religious tests to Christians, uh, try to uh, apply theological tests. (sighs) Oh, you poor thing. No,
0: I I know what that's like when the throat closes up. Yeah, I have a cough button, you don't. That's the advantage I have over you.
2: So, uh, so you know, and we've seen some of the uh, measures, such as uh, all-comers policies on college campuses, trying to force Christian student groups to have non-Christians or allow non-Christians as leaders. So, there's ways it could look like, but I, I do think that's probably coming at some point. If uh, if President Trump wins in 2020, then it comes in 2024, 2028. But the idea that we're not going to have these individuals gain power unless God does something miraculous, I think is, is, is foolish. Uh, I think eventually it's going to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. And if uh, listeners would love to read the article in its entirety that you have written, is there really anti Christian discrimination in America? It's at thegospelcoalition.org. Thegospelcoalition.org is the website, and George Yancey is the author. Um, so George, thanks for uh, doing the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, always a pleasure. And I look forward to uh, calling you again. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. And now uh, we also just want to remind our listeners that we've got that uh, He Reads Truth Bible giveaway, and that ends September 2. So that's just around the corner. If you want, you get your mitts on one of those, and they are gorgeous. Um, the He Reads Truth Study Bible, it's got God's Word, it's got all these beautifully designed resources that makes it really easy to understand. It's got timelines and charts and maps and all the stuff that is really makes reading and studying Scripture uh, makes a big difference. So if you want to make sure you uh, get your name in the drawing for that, go to MyFaithRadio.com and the He Reads Truth Bible giveaway, because we've got our last one coming up. We're giving away September two. So we would love for you to get on that. And we're also having our fall share coming up starting September 10th through the 13th. Thank you in advance for supporting Faith Radio. It means the world to us. We love you like crazy. And we're so glad that uh, you could spend this time with me today. I know we've got uh, a lot of great shows coming up uh, this evening. And I thank you for keeping your station right on Faith Radio. So um, have a great night. And as you lay your head on the pillow, just be knowing that God's working out his great plan in your life and he loves you and uh, get some good rest tonight. I'll see you tomorrow.